In this episode of 92Y Talks, former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright joins David Miliband, the President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, to explore what can be done to meet the needs of the unprecedented number of people uprooted by conflict, war, and disorder. The conversation was recorded on June 28, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. The first thing to say, though, is that the title that was chosen for this series has proven tragically fitting, given the... No, no, not, not... I'm actually not going to talk about what you think I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about what you think I'm going to talk about in about two minutes. Um, tragically, uh, tragically fitting because of the news from Istanbul today. And that's... I'm sure I speak for, for Madeleine and for all of us in expressing the most sincere condolences to the people and government of Turkey on an unspeakable loss uh, today and, uh, as I say, dramatizing some of the issues that I think we're going to talk about. It may be worth saying that the origins of this series lie in something that I heard Secretary Albright say, and so there couldn't be a more fitting first conversationalist in this series than Madeleine Albright. And she said the following, and I think it's a really great starting point for trying to track some of the challenges around the world today. She said that when she first went to the UN in 1990, early 1993, January 1993, as Secretary Clinton's ambassador to the UN, international leadership foreign policy felt like uh, that it had come out of an era, a Cold War era, where foreign policy was like steering a ship up the Suez Canal. Throughout the Cold War, you gripped the steering wheel and tried to power forward, and of course there was another ship going the other way. Secretary Albright said that it felt in the 90s that international leadership foreign policy was like steering a ship in the English Channel. You could see water around you, but there was land on both sides. And when I heard her in 2012, she said the challenge for international leadership today is it feels like we're on the open seas without a compass with no land to see. And that's really the context for the discussions that we're going to be having over the next... Uh, Madeline and I will talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll take your questions. Just before we get to Brexit, why don't you just say a bit about that... Um, yeah. Why don't you just say a bit about that metaphor that you conjured up, which I think is a really arresting way of thinking about the challenges of international leadership? Well, today. I do think, you know... First of all, I'm delighted to be here again. I feel very much at home at the 92nd Street Y. Everybody's always been very kind, and I'm delighted to be with you, David. We have done many things together, and we will continue to do that, and I'm, it's just fun and interesting and uh, provocative. Um, let me just say the following thing. It's interesting. I am a child of the Cold War, and so kind of watching what had gone on in terms of the other ship and the constraints of doing things, it was a dangerous time. There's no question about it during the Cold War, but there were certain rules, uh, and um, once you learned the rules, um, and you were dealing with a rational actor on the other side, even though the ship was coming towards you. Um, the 90s were truly fascinating because everything seemed doable. Um, the UN, the Russian veto was gone. We were looking at all kinds of new issues. But there, were, um, there was a sense that you weren't alone, that there was land on either side, and that uh, there were some, there was some uh, diameters that were out there that you could count on. After that, and where we are now, is literally um, the rules don't apply. And when you were talking just now about Istanbul, who would have th thought that, you know, you, uh, a civilized place where um, um, people were in an airport in the international terminal, kind of a, the real sign of feeling that you could travel, you could be a part of something, and all of a sudden uh, some uh, suicide bombers tear everything up. And so there's no, there's, it's difficult to develop the answers for it, and yet you have to keep going. Sometimes the sea is calm and sometimes it's very rough. What you really need is a good captain, and I think that's one of the questions now. Who is the captain? Uh, do you have, need more than one captain? You certainly need a crew. And so I think that one can expand on that image. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get to the um, whether or not the crew is multilingual or not. Uh, the, um, the, the, the 
British vote last week, the vote of the British people to quit the European Union, I think it's fair to say, has sent shockwaves politically as well as economically around the world. Watching as a friend of the UK, someone who spent part of her childhood in the UK, talk us through what, you, what you've seen happen. How do you diagnose it? Well, I think that it clearly was a shock, I think, because it doesn't make any sense. And so you count on uh, <laughs> rational thinking, and, um, and there, were, there were everybody that I had listened to and talked to thought this can't happen because uh, it was part of a system that was beginning to work that we were all counting on. Um, and as an American, uh, President Obama really made very clear why it was important. A number of us spoke to that uh, in terms of a number of us that have been in national security policy in the United States, explaining that the EU itself was very important. Some, a lot of people didn't think that the Americans wanted a strong European Union. That is not true. Mm. We counted and continue to count on a strong European Union because we want partners. Um, I'd, President Clinton said it first that we were the indispensable nation. I said it so often it became identified with me. But the bottom line is there's nothing in the word indispensable that says alone. It just means that we need to be engaged, but we want partners. And there's no better partner than the European Union with the UK in it. And there is no question that the special relationship is special. You and I are an example of it. Uh, but, I, uh, but I really do think that uh, it is important it is a great blow to the system, to whatever rules, and makes that uncharted sea even more difficult. And having uh, a crew that you can deal with and that you can talk to and that you can understand. So it, it is, uh, I think, sending shockwaves will continue to. And what I find so interesting now is reading about what's going on in England itself, where people are saying, they. I mean, I gather that Twitter had more, um, questions that people said, what is the EU? Uh, they didn't know how many countries there were in it. It's, it's as if they had been persuaded by something that wasn't very logical. And there are a lot of questions, frankly, as to whether it can be redone. Uh, and what are the rules? And why did this happen? And I think the polling data was kind of off. And so I think most of us thought this couldn't possibly happen. What do you make of the last question on Brexit? And then we'll get on to the state of the world, what do you make of the assault on expertise? Uh, the governor of the Bank of England, the 10 Nobel Prize winners, the eight secretaries of state, the eight treasury secretaries, the Archbishop of Canterbury, were dismissed as quote-unquote experts and, were to, uh, and, the people were told, uh, and we were told the people have had enough of experts. I mean, does that ring a bell? Um... Well, I think that there is a problem about experts being viewed as elitist. Um, that is true in every country. Uh, I think they're also, uh, it usually takes more than five minutes for me to blame the media. Uh, but <laughs> the bottom line is, as I, because I followed some of the tabloids that were in England in terms of uh, a real push for Brexit and a kind of a sense that that was the thing to do. I do think that there was discounting of some of the experts because in many ways this was a, um, I, I hate to say it this way because it's very non-PC, but class action going on in terms of difference of classes and people feeling that they were being betrayed by the leadership and just no faith in the institutions. And the experts were really uh, pleaders for institutions. And so it was a questioning of everything that was going on. And then something that I find very difficult to deal with, and it's true in this country, is that people listen to what they already think they know, and they don't want to have other opinions. Uh, and I try to guard, by the way, you should all be glad you don't live in Washington, because as I drive, I listen to right-wing radio uh, and do a lot of yelling. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> And so when I get to my office, somebody says to me, I hope to God you didn't call into that show. <laughs> <laughs> um, one person who was celebrating the result was President Putin of Russia. And you've got this unique vantage point, um, given your own childhood, given uh, the history of Czechoslovakia. Um, but then where you were sitting in the 90s, in the first years after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
talk to us about what you think is the, the psychology and the strategic intent, uh, if you think there is one, of the, of the Russian president? Well, let me say this. I, I used to be known as a Soviet expert. Uh, and I go home and I look at my library and I think archaeology. Then I thought, not so much. Um, and one of the things that I did in 91, after the fall of the Soviet Union, I was heading a think tank at the time and was asked to do a survey of all of Europe after the fall of the wall um, in terms of what attitudes were generally. We had very complex questionnaires and we did focus groups and all that. And one focus group I'll never forget was outside of Moscow. And this man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. And I do think that loss of identity was a very serious issue. I do think it was a mistake for the United States to say that we won the Cold War. They lost the Cold War. The system failed. But there really has been an identity crisis in Russia. In the 90s, when, um, or the second part of the 90s, when we were in office, uh, we really, President Clinton and I, looked at how to bring Russia into the system and thought that we were doing what we should be. They felt that we had not treated them with respect, which is not true. But nevertheless, that seems to be um, kind of the verdict on it from their perspective. Putin has identified himself with this loss of identity and returning it, and Russia will be great. Um, and I think that his, one of his goals is to um, make the European Union fall apart. I think that is one of, one of the, uh, he wants to have problems. He didn't like it when Ukraine uh, thought that they wanted to be a part of it. He doesn't like NATO. He doesn't want any of that. And he is using a very, I think, from his perspective, clever tool, which is rising Russian nationalism in order to keep his people where the economy's not working, kind of fortified and moving mm -hmm. forward. But this is an identity crisis. I have said we had Ivan the Terrible, and now we have Putin the Worst. Uh, I think that sets the stage, really, for the, the core of this conversation, which is the, 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 the point that probably the greatest symptom of the decade of disorder, if that's what it is to be, is the number of people who are fleeing war and violence around the world. And the figures on refugee flows and internal displacement are staggering. 65 million people in total who are refugees or internally displaced. 21 million refugees, 43 million internally displaced. This is a world record. And it's taking place, this mass exodus, from places like Syria, but not only from Syria, Congo, Somalia, Eritrea, Afghanistan. Uh, it's taking place at a time when there aren't big wars between states. There are civil wars that are going on for an average of 37 years, according to the academic data, and are spilling people out of, their, out of the borders of their own country and out of towns and cities within countries at an unbelievable rate. And the extraordinary thing is, less than 1% of the world's refugees went home last year. So you've got this mounting exodus of people. So to sort of start at the beginning, why do you think this is happening? Why at a time of unprecedented peace between nations should there seem to be unprecedented violence between peoples within nations? Well, it is definitely the question in terms of trying to figure out what is going on globally. And I have tried to kind of talk about a couple of megatrends that have both, that are double-edged. So everybody talks about globalization, and there are some very positive parts to it in terms of uh, people being able to move around the world and to try to uh, have interconnected markets and a number of different aspects of um, enlarging the possibilities in every way. The negative part to it is that it's faceless. And people, that has been one of the issues about who are the people in Brussels, it's faceless. And so what's happened is people have decided they want to group again with their own kind um, and have an identity. And I think it's good to have an identity. We all have a number of different ones, but having an identity is great unless your identity hates the other identity. 
And I think nationalism is one of the, patriotism is one thing, nationalism is a very dangerous uh, force, especially when it is used then to uh, motivate people to dislike their neighbors and, uh, or another grouping within their own country, which is what leads to civil wars. The other mega trend is technology, which is incredible in so many positive ways. I always, uh, one country to talk about is Kenya, for instance, where all of a sudden um, you can pay your bills through mobile phones and you have all kinds of ways that people's lives are made easier. The double-edged part to that is that what technology has done is disaggregate people's voices and goes a little bit back to what I said earlier. You just live in an echo chamber and you listen to what um, you already think uh, and are propelled by social media in some particular way. Uh, but the main thing, politically speaking, and I stole this line from somebody, which is that Technology has made it possible for people to speak to their governments on 21st century technology, and the government to listen to them on 20th century technology, and provide 19th century responses. <laughs> and so there is no faith in institutions. And I am chairman of something called the National Democratic Institute, and works on democracy generally, the nuts and bolts of democracy, and one of the things that when you're in school, graduate school, people say, what comes first, political development or economic development? They clearly go together because democracies have to deliver. People want to vote and eat. And so the bottom line is what is happening in these countries if they do in fact vote in a, in a government, do they have faith in it, uh, is the government delivering? And so we are in a position now where um, the only institutions which do get any confidence are the most local ones, mayors and city councils. But national governments and the international system, there's no confidence in it. So you have this kind of move where people are dissatisfied where they live. Now, I would make the following, I'm a refugee and very grateful to have been taken in by this country. But most people want to live in the country where they were born if they can not live under, we came here because the communists had taken over Czechoslovakia, under a system where you can't exist, you want, you want to leave, uh, uh, or you feel that you're going to be uh, tortured or some dreadful thing, those are the refugees. The migrants are people who are trying to get a better life. And the question is, why would people leave uh, if they could make a good living and have a good life where they are. So there are any number of things that we have to deal with. And you, through the IRC, are looking at all of this. And, and I think, I remember when you decided to take this job, I don't think you had any idea that you would be in a growth industry, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, and, and everybody's lucky to have you in that position because I do think that this is beyond the scope of what anybody expected, and the institutional structures are not working to deal with it. So we've got this, what you've described as a politics and economics interacting in this toxic way to produce some of these flows of uh, people. Um, there are two other elements that I'd be interested in you considering. The first is religion. Now, it's striking to me that the International Rescue Committee was founded in 1933 in this city by Albert Einstein to rescue Jews from Europe. Today, about 45% of our work is in Muslim-majority countries around the world. And some of the greatest refugee flows, countries like Syria, countries like Afghanistan, are coming from Muslim-majority countries. And I wonder to what extent some of the worst violence in a country like the Central African Republic is not uh, from within the Muslim world, it's conflict between Muslims and Christians in that country. What, what, how should we understand the role of religion as a force that is helping drive this exodus at the moment? Well, let me say, um, when, I mean, my book was mentioned about the role of religion in foreign policy. And I think Americans have always believed in separation of church and state, um, even though in God we trust. And, um, but it has been a complicated issue in terms of foreign policy. So when I was Secretary of State, um, what happened, I'm the first uh, Secretary of State to put Muslim holidays on the official calendar. Mm. Uh, we had iftar dinners. I was trying to learn about what was going on. Um, and 
uh, we in fact began to, we were gonna put out kind of a, a primer on what Islam was about. Most Americans know nothing about Islam, much less the difference between Shia and Sunni and various other sects. What happened was then we left uh, office and I decided to take that material and, and look at what was going on in all the religions. And I think the hard part is developing what the adjectives are. Every religion, uh, Abrahamic religion, has fundamentalists. Um, people talk about moderates. Moderate Muslims do believe in moderation passionately. So nothing particularly works. But I do think that we need to understand the power of Islam, uh, something that, um, as I said, we have not paid enough attention to. I, th I think that what has happened is, and there are any number of ways to describe this, is that it, Islam did not go through, even the, as I said, it's very hard to develop the words, it's enlightenment, it has gone through various phases. It does have a process whereby the Quran can be interpreted and called ijtihad, and that's the question of how it works and who's in charge. Now what has happened is that the religion has also become identified with uh, the nation state in some way. So what you have are arguments now between the Iranians um, as Shias versus the Sunnis in um, Saudi Arabia and any number of various complications to it. But we need to understand better what is going on specifically. I also do think that if, and I did spend time reading the Quran and the Bible, the Old Testament has some pretty nasty language in it. Uh, and, uh, but there are, in fact, and in the New Testament, talks about swords and various uh, ways of fighting. And the Quran has that kind of language in it also, but it has very similar phrases about peace and love and any number of ways of treating people. And I, I think what has happened is that there are people who have hijacked Islam. And the only way that we are going to be able to deal with this is to get the Muslims to help us. Uh, the idea of excluding Muslims from this country is, if I might say, insane. Uh, and, um, and we need to include... Uh, and, uh, and I think sort out some way where we, you can't have a bunch of Christians and Jews telling the Muslims what to do. And so I think it has to happen from inside and be treated with respect and understand that church and state are not separated in Islam. The other part that you were talking about in Africa, what I find very interesting are the number of countries that are, um, Nigeria, for instance, a number of countries that are both Muslim and Christian. Um, and I do think that those who have ill intent are using religion as a way to um, carry out nationalist feelings or tribal feelings or any number of ways. But religion is not to blame. I think mm -hmm. religion has been hijacked. I think it's really... Uh, uh, I, I want, I'm going to come to the second... Uh, I said there were two other factors. One was religion. The other is the weakness and division of the international political system. And I'll come to that in a sec. But I just want to nail a point for this audience here after your, the answer you've just given. Sudan was a country that had a monumental civil war for 25 years. And it essentially pitted a Muslim North against a Christian South, more or less. And after the 25-year civil war, there was a comprehensive peace agreement in 2006, which led, uh, was supposed to lead to five years of negotiations, but in the end led to, to a referendum on independence for South Sudan. And 99% of the South Sudanese voted for independence. Within three years of that independence, this world's newest country, has exploded in ethnic violence and political violence. We've got 700 staff in South Sudan today. Uh, two of them were killed in a, inside a UN compound two years ago. And I just think it's worth the audience seeing how complex and challenging it is that you can go from a situation of 99% unity to achieve your independence, and then within three years be literally killing each other and displacing 150,000 people and four and a half million in a population of 11 million are now in humanitarian need. So just see that. That's why decade of disorder, I think, is saying something. I just want to come, though, to the other factor, which is that the state of the international system. Because you've described 
globalization, economic trends, political trends. You've described the way in which states and religion interact. But the anchor has often been the international system. And during the Cold War, there, were, there was sponsorship of civil wars. But there, was also, there were also examples of the international system being a force for stability. It feels like the international political system is weaker and more divided than at any time, certainly since the end of the Cold War. And I think it would be interesting to hear you reflect on what's the role of the international system in trying to contain some of this disorder. Is it correct that it's being ineffectual at the moment? And, and what can be done about it? Well, um, I have been a great advocate of the United Nations. Um, I uh, always say that the reason that I actually got to be ambassador to the UN was when I was a sophomore in high school, I won the United Nations contest for the Rocky Mountain Empire, which is Colorado and Wyo, et cetera. And I think mainly because I could name the 60 countries in alphabetical order. Uh, <laughs> there are now 187 countries in the UN, um, and they have, they're very different from each other in a number of different ways. And um, there are real questions about how parts of the UN work. Uh, we have depended on it and the Security Council uh, in order to um, be the instrument that deals with problems such as we're talking about. So the Security Council, there are questions about how it works, for instance. It's like, I, I would describe it like the Rubik's Cube. So when I was there, we thought that Germany and Japan should be permanent members of the Security Council given their size. The first country to come to me to object was Italy. They said, this is outrageous. We lost the war too, which is not a great campaign. Uh, <laughs> um, or at that time, uh, there, uh, out of 15 countries, there would be five European countries. And I'd go to a European ambassador and I'd say, I need your help on uh, X issue. And that person would say, can't do it because the EU does not yet have a common position. Then a couple of days later, I'd go back to the same person and say, can you help me now? And the person would say, no, because the EU does have a common position, which also makes it difficult. Maybe that will be different now. Um, but I do think there are various parts of the UN that made it harder to operate. The other part, when I got there, being a professor, I had to have a theoretical construct. So I divided, at that stage, there were 183 countries. So I divided them into four groups. And the first group were those that believed in an international system, even though might be looking at it in somewhat a different way. The second group were those that were newly independent, that didn't have yet the infrastructure to be part of the first group. The third group were rogue states, and then until we got more polite and called them states of concern. And then there were the basket cases that, uh, you know, Somalia and Haiti, for instance. And the idea was that what we wanted to do was to get everybody into the first group, to have an international system that could make certain rules that would be abided by, by the nation states. So that has disappeared, clearly. And then the other part here that has made things more complicated, the nation state has not gone away but there are non-state actors that play a very large role. And the bottom line is everybody thinks of non-state actors just as terrorists, but they're multinational corporations are non-state actors. You are a non-state actor. Bill Gates is a non-state actor. And the bottom line is how do you bring that into the system so that you're not just uh, told what uh, the results of some uh, decision is at the United Nations, but to be a part of it. So the system, this was created in 1945. It needs to adjust. Any organization needs to adjust. So that's the international. Then there's the question about how the regional organizations operate. How do they relate to chapter eight of the UN Charter is all about regional organizations. Who actually carries out the decisions of the Security Council? Is it NATO? Is it the African Union? So the whole thing is kind of up in the air in terms of whether the international institution is working, how the regional institutions react to it, and who is the non-state actor. And if I sound like a political science professor, I am. But the bottom line is there, there are real questions about how they all fit with each mm -hmm. other, and we are in a different century and there has to be more adaptation. Do you think there has to be more sharing of power? Yes, I do. Uh, we don't want a world government, uh, and we do need to have states be partners. 
Um, We are not operating in a a one-state system, a unipolar system, or even a bipolar system. Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and ends in an ism. Uh, um, But it is just partnerships, and so there has to be a sharing of power. Um, We've got about 10 minutes for us to carry on this conversation, and then we're going to turn to some questions from the audience. So if you you see one of the people going down the row or... Upstairs, please fill in a, a, a form and we'll uh, um, a little card, and we'll take the question. And I think in our ten minutes, we should talk a bit about this country, and talk a bit about this country's international policy, and a bit about what's going on at home, and pick up some of these issues of difference and refugees at home. And uh, I thought we'd start with how America projects itself aw- abroad. I checked that Americans in surveys say that 15% of federal funds go to overseas aid. Now, the actual number is about 0.21%. And I wonder, I think it would be interesting to hear you talk about this country's willingness, capacity, interest in global leadership today. Because you said the indispensable power, uh, you've modestly said it was President Clinton, not you, who who first used it. But a, a state has to want to be an indispensable power as well as have the capacity to be one. And I think it would be very interesting for me and I think probably for the audience, to hear you talk about what it takes to play that kind of global role, to bear the burdens, the undoubted burdens that go with it. I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but one of the things I say when I do teach is every country makes foreign policy decisions based on five factors. So the first factor is objective. What is the location of the country? What is its resource base? What are its demographics? So Most countries don't change their geographical position. The Soviet Union did, and Russia is different. But what has happened in the United States, we have changed an objective factor, resources, and that has to do with the oil revolution. The second factor is subjective. How do the people feel about what is going on? That's much harder to measure. But there's no question that the American people are tired from Iraq and Afghanistan. And then something that I call the Karzai effect, which is... President Karzai not only did not thank us for the number, all of us, for the number of people that died um, or lost limbs in Afghanistan, but he said that we'd screwed it all up. Um, And so that is added to the subjective. The third factor is how the government is organized. And in our case, executive legislative relations uh, run by different parties at this time, making it very hard to figure out you know, how various tools are used. The fourth factor has to do with bureaucratic politics that is reflected in the budget. So you think, you said that Americans think the following. What, uh, the budget is divided into various functions. The Pentagon budget is around $600 billion. The the State Department's budget is less than $50 billion, which not only uh, pays for diplomats and security and any number of different things, but also the foreign assistance budget. The bottom line is that people, I, I think putting foreign and assistance is not a good coupling of words. Um, and so I call it national security support because we need to do that kind of economic uh, assistance abroad. And so anyway, that's the fourth factor. The fifth factor is the role of individuals and whoever is in charge. Uh, and one of the things that's been interesting in terms of the, for, of the debate in this country um, during the primaries is that there really are different views. And there are those who believe that the best thing is for America to have a wall, um, or even before that, an isolationist trend where we should not do anything. And then there are those who understand that the world doesn't work if the United States is not engaged. But it has been part of the debate. And it has to do with those five factors, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard people say, look at Iraq, American intervention went wrong. Look at Libya, half intervention went wrong. Look at Syria, no intervention, that's gone wrong. <laughs> so you can see where the skepticism comes from. You can see where the demands for humility come from. The, probably the most dramatic and difficult foreign policy issues today is Syria. Uh, it's a, a war between people in their own government that then became a sectarian conflict 
that then became an intra-regional conflict with Iran and Saudi Arabia and has now become a, geo, a global geopolitical conflict. It's got these chronic layers of a, a middle-class population of 23 million, seven million, five million are refugees, seven million internally displaced. Can, you, can we coax you into talking through what, what were the missteps, do you think, or what were the roads not taken over the last five years, or were we doomed to end up in this situation? Well, let me just say this. First of all, things evolve, and there are unintended consequences of decisions. And so um, President Clinton read a lot, and he assigned books to us. And one he assigned to me was called The Peace to End All Peace, which is a by David Frumkin, an American uh, historian, which goes back to the end of World War I and describes how the modern Middle East was created. And the short version of the book is that the British and French bureaucracies lied to each other. Um, but the bottom line is there were states that were created there, uh, some with artificial borders bringing a variety of peoples together that um, now we're seeing uh, had some disagreements. Then, and um, there were various, we won't go through all that, but the bottom line is that has been an effect in terms of what outside um, either interference or direction uh, in the Middle East. And I think this has gone on for some time. You know, you were the guarantors and the U.S. were guarantors. And all of a sudden, all those various pieces have come loose. I do happen to believe that the war in Iraq was one of the greatest mistakes in American foreign policy. Um, you know, we had Saddam Hussein in a box with sanctions and a variety of things, whatever. But, and by the way, I have, I'm doing a, a, um, a task force now under the auspice of the Atlantic Council, taking a much deeper look at the Middle East to try to figure out what are the causes of some of this. And, and I think that this issue in Syria was specifically kind of an inkblot aspect from Iraq um, and a question about what is the responsibility of a leader towards his own people. Barrel bombing them and using chemical weapons is not the job of the leader. Uh, and then there are questions about who the variety of rebel groups are. So all the various pieces of the sectarian and the religious and the location and the fact that the American people were tired from Iraq uh, and nobody wanted to get involved in Syria. So it is the worst of all possible um, worlds on this. But the refugee situation will not be solved out of that area unless we are able to bring some kind of peace to Syria. So it is more than a chicken and egg. It is one of the most complex, and it goes back to something else, which is the Russian role. As we've done this thing at the Atlantic Council, we've said some things are local, some are regional, and some is the role of the global powers. And what is it that the Russians are doing in Syria? Um, and they have done some good in terms of being able to work with us on getting a chemical weapons agreement. And then the question is, whom are they supporting now? And so I have to say that this is the most complicated issue that we've all seen. And analyzing it is one thing. Trying to find a solution is something else. Let's finish off on the home front. Um, at least finish off this section before we take questions from the audience. Uh, the, the IRC works in 29 US cities. We resettle 12,000 refugees a year. The, the heart of America comes out to greet new neighbors. And there's extraordinary mentoring, volunteering, embrace of people who are arriving from war-torn nations right across the country. But there's also a political debate that is polarized, toxic, and full of fear. And I wonder if you could speak to that, because we're speaking in the ultimate immigrant and refugee city. It's not an accident that Einstein was in New York in 1933 when he founded the IRC. And I've heard you say before that when you were Secretary of State, you used to do a citizenship ceremonies. And at one of the citizenship ceremonies, um, a woman came up to you and um, said, isn't it amazing, I'm a refugee, I don't know where from, and, um, I'm being given my American citizenship by the Secretary of State. And then you say, yeah, but isn't it even re more remarkable that in the country where you're given your citizenship by the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State herself is a refugee? Um, and I think it would be really interesting to hear you speak personally, but also politically, if you like, about this 
fear of the other, fear of the stranger, that seems to have uh, entered the, the bloodstream in, in quite a dangerous way here. Well, I am, uh, people ask me what's the most important thing in my life, becoming an American. I'm a grateful American. When we came to this country, my father uh, said that people said the following thing, that um, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here, and when are you going to become a citizen? Um, and I, to this day, remember, uh, you know, I became a citizen when I was a junior in college. Uh, Wellesley, by the way. Uh, yeah, um, but I, I do think that what is the problem is we are pretty generous as far as taking immigrants into this country. Uh, we have a generous immigration policy, but I do think it has become increasingly confused. And part of it is um, because there are some economic problems in this country. I think people are concerned that um, their jobs are being taken away um, and that the country is changing. And what needs to happen is that there needs to be a full immigration policy. It has to be done in a way, this country, I always think, it does sound kind of self-serving, but actually immigrants have done a lot for this country. Um, and I do think yeah. that it's very important for us to understand that. Um, and I do hope that uh, when she's president that there really will be possible. Um, well. To review an immigration policy. So, um, Look, these questions are miles better than the questions I've been asking. I mean, uh, but you've mentioned Wellesley and you mentioned she. So um, for th this question says, from one hopeful Wellesley alumna to another. Who is it? Who, who asked the question? Where are you? <laughs> Up in the gods. Okay. From one hopeful Wellesley alumna to another, how do you think having a woman in the White House will alter world politics? So I think that's... A, and you're asking about... The fact that it's a woman president, the first woman president, how does the gender change the tone or the substance? What's the... Give a shout out. <laughs> well, ha, well, let me just say, first of all, the United States is always very proud of being first. We are definitely not first in this uh, issue. Uh, there are women presidents in a number of places and um, uh, prime ministers, and you had one, and... Um, I do think that it is very uh, important that we have the best person be president of the United States um, and that we have that opportunity with a woman who is better prepared to be president than anybody that I have known. I do think that, um, I always find this difficult in saying, I do think men and women think a little bit differently. Uh, we are, women are better at peripheral vision Men may think deeper on a subject, but I think we are better at multitasking and understanding. I think there is a capability of putting yourself into the other person's shoes um, and the capability of using um, talents in terms of negotiation, of understanding, and then having it because of the peripheral vision, and I speak of the candidates specifically, there has never been anybody, I think, that has a better sense of both domestic and foreign policy and how they go together. And it goes to one of your questions in terms of really um, understanding why people feel the way they do. And often people that are trained in foreign policy don't have a sense about what the needs of the people are. And so I think that that aspect of it. And by the way, though, I know that... Um, I don't think the world will be better off if it were only run by women. I kind of like co-ed. Um, and besides, if you think that it would be better that the world were run by women, you've forgotten high school. <laughs> uh, um, the uh, Swedish foreign minister has announced that Sweden has a feminist foreign policy. Do you think America needs a feminist foreign policy? Well, you know, one of the things that's happened is feminist has kind of gotten a bad reputation. I don't quite know why. But I do think that there are ways that women do think... I happen to think that women's issues are human rights issues. 
uh, and that we all want the same things in terms of being able to respect other people, to respect the differences, to have the capability of stating views and not feeling that you're going to be criticized just for opening your mouth and stating your view. And what I do think women are good at is listening. And I, and I think the sign of a leader uh, is, in fact, to be able to listen and to absorb diverse ideas and respect people for their diversity. And link that back to the central question tonight about the, the, the threat of a decade of disorder. Because you've spoken about some of the threats, but you've also given hints about some of the opportunities and the liberation that's coming with some of globalization. How does what you've just said about the, the fact that the 21st century will be a century with unprecedented opportunities for women, however much inequality still continues to exist, how does that change the way in which the globe is going to be able to handle uh, a putative decade of disorder? Well, let me just say this. Disorder, just in itself, sounds negative. I think the question is whether, and it's certainly hard for somebody my age who's grown up with a whole set of institutions to realize that something is not working that there, it requires institutions to change, adapt, create new ones. And I think that um, there might be some, you know, by the way, I'm often asked if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Uh, <laughs> and I do think, I worry that we will not, that we will only see the negative parts of a being out in the ocean. Uh, that there are opportunities, and actually Christopher Columbus got here by being in an open ocean. And so I think that there are, we should see, try to find some of the positive aspects of being able to reorganize institutions and trying to get more people involved in the decision-making process, trying to get uh, more respect for people uh, the diversity of the people, and I think, and listening, and not if I, I think the most important part about being a leader is being able to listen to the diverse ideas, respect them, and then make a decision. But listening is a very important part mm. of it. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm going to slightly amend the, the question that's come in. After seven and a half years of the Obama administration, what is your view of how the rest of the world currently views the U.S.? I think people um, are, con I, I think they're confused, frankly, in terms of um, there is a certain resentment to a leader, there's no question, and people want to know why power is not shared. Yet if the United States is not involved, then nothing happens. I believe it or not that truly I've seen it, I've been around enough tables, but it doesn't mean that you don't work with others. And so... But I have to tell you, I, I'll speak for myself. I just was out with a group of people and I was criticized for not doing anything about Rwanda and doing something about Kosovo. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I, it's not easy to be the United States. Um, I was very proud to sit behind that sign and I know President Obama's proud to be President of the United States, but it is not easy because the situation in different places demands different things. Um, there, you can't do everything alone. Who is gonna be your partner? What is the burden sharing aspect? We are about to, I'm going to Warsaw for the NATO summit. There are gonna be questions about what is the role of the United States? How do you get others to participate um, in it? And so the United States, I think, is viewed by some as being overly the policeman of the world, and by others as being absent. And I have finally decided that it is one of those questions. Uh, it depends on where you sit. I do think the United States needs to be involved, but it's very difficult to be the United States. This is an interesting question from Colby Smith, um, who said, you mentioned in an interview with Bloomberg, and we've talked about it tonight, that Putin is happy with the Brexit vote. How do you think China views, she asks, how do you think China views the Europe? But maybe you could extend that to how does China see its relationship with Russia and how does it see its potential relationship developing with the United States? I've just come from yeah. China and I was there several days and, and saw some leaders and then 
uh, some business people and also university people. And I think that the Chinese also are seeking their place in the world. A lot of their foreign policy is based on resources. Um, and I believe that the most important relationship that the U.S. has um, in the 21st century is the one with China. And I think that they see that from many perspectives also. I think that China wants to be a world player. Um, and what I found very interesting was that uh, just as I was in China, Xi Jinping had gone to Belgrade, was in the Balkans, and then he was going to Poland. Uh, they, he had been in the Middle East. I think that he is pushing in various places to be recognized as a global leader um, without, I would say, frankly, yet understanding all the responsibilities that go with it. Uh, I think we would like to see the Chinese be more helpful on North Korea and play a responsible role. I think that the relationship with Russia is one of some competition um, in a, a variety of places and some places where they support each other. So uh, that is part of the complexity, but China is definitely the power that is going to have to be dealt with um, and one that is interested in being in other parts of the world primarily because of resources. So if you take your five part yeah. um, description that you use in your Georgetown lessons, uh, how would you apply that to the Chinese view of the Middle East? Because they're obviously, they are increasingly dependent on yeah. oil from the Middle East compared to the US decreasingly. I think their objective factors are, first of all, they are expanding their geographical footprint uh, in the South and East China Sea but they also are resource hungry. That is their big thing. And as you point out, they are dependent on some of the uh, sources of fuel out of the Middle East, also out of Africa in a number of different ways. So their objective factor really does work on there. Their subjective factor, which is very interesting, um, Xi Jinping is playing off some anger about the way China has been treated throughout centuries. Um, pushed around by the West in the Opium War and a variety of kind of, we are now back or really need to be respected. So that part, and he also is playing the nationalist card, um, certainly with Japan and a variety of places. Their problem is their, gov their governmental system uh, is somewhat awkward in terms of the role of the party and how it operates in a very large place. Their budget, they are spending more on their military. And the role of the individual is very interesting because Xi Jinping, I think, does see himself as potentially the most powerful leader since Mao. So um, there are a lot of uh, factors in that. And the relationship that the United States has with China is one of the more complex ones because there's some things we agree on, some that we disagree on. And in diplomacy, when you have a complicated relationship, you say it's multifaceted. So it is definitely <laughs> multifaceted. Um, the, do you see, um, how do you see China playing the trade debate? Because we've got a question here about, uh, given recent backlashes to global, against globalization, what do you think the future holds for future trade deals? And certainly, the U.S.-European trade deal is on the rocks, is in trouble. Uh, the deal um, with the Pacific is also uh, under strain. Of course, China not invited into the Pacific deal. What, talk a bit about how you see contrasting U.S. and Chinese views of trade and how that should inform our understanding of globalization. Well, let me just say, I think that there has been a misunderstanding or... A a confusion between globalization and trade. Um, trade is blamed for a lot of the issues of globalization which have made us interdependent. Um, and what I have found interesting is the symbiosis, frankly, between the Chinese economy and ours. We need each other. And the Chinese are beginning to have more problems themselves in terms of um, cheaper production in, in other countries. I do think that... Um, we need trade agreements, but they have to be fair and they have to really be a way that our workers don't suffer from it. I um, was very much as, as an internationalist all for free trade. Then I worked for Ed Muskie, who was from Maine, uh, and was head of the shoe for younger, caucus. For younger, younger listeners, uh, Ed Muskie. It's Musk a long was time ago, 1972. 1972. Um, and, uh, 
but he was um, the head of the Shoe Caucus. And because I was his chief legislative assistant, I became the empress of the Shoe Caucus. And then I had to go visit factories in Maine of people that had been completely displaced by international trade. And so we have to consider what trade does locally. I do think that the Chinese need to be part of a system. We brought them into the WTO in order to have that happen. They should abide by, by rules, and fair trade is one thing. I think the other part is that there are an awful lot of issues now to do with trade that weren't part of it before, digital markets and um, a variety of ways that we are interlocked with each other. But we can't operate, I think, without some kind of fair trade agreements. We've got about 10 minutes to go. So if you've got a question, um, there's someone down in the front row, someone can come and pick up. If you just uh, wave a card in the air and then um, we can pick it up. Um, someone says, uh, what should they read? If they want to understand foreign policy, what should they read? They only give you three choices, CNN, BBC, or New York Times. I think you can broaden... <laughs> you, can, uh, you can go a bit broader than, uh, than that. What should, what should people read? Well, I, I can only tell you... Other I than mean, your Twitter feed. Well, but I, I actually think that what has to happen is you have to read more than one source, that that is the most important part these days. And so I read the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times every morning. Um, and what is interesting is to see the contrast of it. I do listen to TV with um, some trepidation, realizing that the cable channels are just competing with each other. Um, but I also do think that it's important to read The Economist um, and um, journals. I really do think part of the issue here, and this is the hard part, there's a surfeit of information. And therefore, the issue is how you choose what you read and how you, you realize that you have to compare information. But you made a great point as we were coming over. There's a surfeit of information and there's a surfeit of disinformation. Right. And the old phrase, the, the, the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets right. its boots on, yeah. feels like it's got some relevance to Very this. Very much. And I think point. part of the problem is that all of a sudden, um, I don't want to sound antediluvian, but the bottom line is the rapidity of information, incorrect information coming. I made a rule when I was secretary, which is the first information is always wrong. Um, and I think that what one has to do is to then analyze uh, what's going on, not overreact, not decide that you have to make decisions the minute that uh, you get uh, an email or you know, and I think one has to be careful about it because people used to have more time to consider decisions. And I think one of the things that's happened here, and it might go back to some of the, your original questions, I think technology has outrun social policy. Um, and that there are a number of different questions that require almost a renegotiation of the social contract. Who is uh, responsible to whom? What do the institutions do? What do the people do? It is, in a democracy, you have to have a population that informs itself. Um, otherwise, you get decisions that don't make any sense. And therefore, you have to realize that some of the information you're getting is wrong. Hmm. Let's take it uh, to uh, the core of what IRC does, which is, in the midst of disorder, how do you bring hope and life and a chance to make something um, of, of, of yourself. And uh, there is an extraordinary range of humanitarian need around the world. And what you said about 21st century problems, 20th century institutions, feels like it's relevant to the challenges of humanitarian endeavor. Um, today. Do you want to just say a word about what your, you've got your ex-mins, your panel of ex-ministers, and yeah. they put out a report on, or a, a statement on the global humanitarian challenge. Do you want to say a word about, we've yes, just well, been at the UN today uh, talking about it. Well, let me just say that um, I created a group of former foreign ministers, you were a part of it, um, and uh, we have known each other for a long time and worked on a lot of issues together, and we uh, talk without our national positions. And last time, we just decided to deal with the refugee issue. 
um, and very grateful for the things that you're doing. And one of the things that we talked about was how unprepared people were for what was an influx, that somehow the humanitarian part of it uh, had been forgotten, and an interesting part about how the system had not been able to deal with, um, you know, just uh, um, doing cases and trying to figure out how to get people from one place to another. So what we have done is kind of talk about what the modalities could be for the system to deal with it and operating uh, with the UN to the extent that we can and then trying to figure out how to deal with the non-governmental organizations and trying to deal with something that has gotten overwhelming in terms of dealing with issues of the human part, why are people leaving their countries, uh, then how to help them, how to then make sure that um, they are viewed with sympathy and not with fear, um, and trying to figure out how the, the nation state can help and how you, as a non-state actor, can act in this. But it is a, I think the part that we really came down to, David, is that this is a, a crisis, but it's more than an emergency. This is something that we're going to live with for a while. And therefore, the systems have to adapt to people who want to move that because they're afraid or because their children are not getting educated. Or now, we're storing the paper today about the health issues of refugees um, and why you want to deal with the problem in a way that is humane. And so those were the kinds of issues that we talked about. I mean, there are two ways, I think, of thinking about the swathe of unmet need that exists around the world. And by the way, it's worth, when you, when you see stories about the challenge of refugee integration in Western societies, it's worth remembering 86% of the world's refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries. I mean, the greatest burden is borne by countries like Kenya, actually, which has... 650,000 refugees from Somalia and South Sudan. But there are two ways of thinking about it, I think. One uh, of this chasm between the needs that exist and the current levels of provision. One way of thinking about it is what the Pope said when he went to Lampedusa off the coast of Italy when the first drownings were happening. And he basically accused the global community of what he called the globalization of indifference. It's an extraordinary phrase if you think about it because you hear about the globalization of commerce or technology, but the globalization of indifference. And essentially, his argument or his, his accusation is that we're, in all the talk of compassion fatigue and uh, what, what's going on is a loss of human solidarity. So that's one explanation. There's a second explanation, which is that people don't know how to help and they worry that help doesn't make a difference. And in that sense, they're feeling impotent rather than lacking in compassion. And I, I think it's the second that is stronger. That there is an, There's no evidence, actually, that people are less compassionate. But there's plenty of evidence that they feel that the system or the sector is not working well enough and it's not mobilizing them in a serious way. And from my point of view, one of the greatest challenges we have as an NGO that's relatively large, working in 30 countries, is to persuade people that their marginal contribution, be it of time or effort or money, can actually make a difference. And I think that's a really important thing as we uh, go forward. And for me, the biggest uh, challenge is to say to people that big, complex, global problems do need government leadership. They do need innovation from organizations like ours and from businesses, but they also need popular mobilization. And if you think about the great causes that have seen change over the years, international or domestic, they line up those three factors. And it seems to me that the weaknesses of government that you've uh, spoken about are feeding into a sense of cynicism or skepticism that problems can be uh, solved. And I hope that people will take from this conversation some sense that amidst the disorder there is actually explanation and I hope, they'll, I hope they'll go and visit our new website, rescue.org, and uh, I hope they'll take some inspiration from that uh, to see that actually, at a local level, you can make an extraordinary difference. And that local level can be in New York or New Jersey, where refugees are being resettled every day. 
or it can be in the most war-torn parts of the world, in Niger or Nigeria or Kenya, the three countries that I've been to uh, recently. And I think the fact that so many people have come here tonight to, to listen to you, Madeline, is testimony to the fact that actually horizons are broad in the 21st century. Uh, problem, they say problems are, uh, that all, all politics is local, but actually I think horizons are broad in the modern world. What we face is a mismatch between the extent of global, potential global concern and global solidarity and the means to do something about it. And so I hope people take some energy from the extraordinary vigor at the, uh, after your career in public service, the fact that you're straight back from China, you're off to Warsaw, you're going to Cambridge, I mean, it's sort of exhausting for me, never mind for uh, uh, everyone else. But to be honest, it's been an absolute privilege to listen to you tonight. You've given us a fantastic explanation of what's going on around the world, and I hope everyone will join me in giving an enormous round of well, applause. Well, thank you all. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. <laughs>